OPN Ask an Angel podcasts are conversations with global angel investors and venture capitalists. We explore how to invest, understanding investment strategies, and approaches to due diligence. Join us and learn what it takes to be a startup or what it takes to invest in the next great company. Welcome to the Supporters Fund Ask an Investor. I'm your host, Jeffrey Pogman, and let's please welcome Saeed Shah, Noetic Fund, as our investor for today. Welcome. Said, I'm 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 taking your name with the million sides that I know, and I'm like, okay, I'm gonna get this right. I'm gonna make sure I say it right. But it's a pleasure to have you join us today. Thank you very much, Jeffrey. I appreciate it, and, and it's sad, by the way, but appreciate it's it. Sad. I like it. I like it. It's a great name, and uh, it. it um, I, I think it's the apostrophe that throws me off because in my brain, I'm like, okay, this is how I've got to say it, and then bam. But yeah. either way, pleasure to have you here today. We're very excited. And I can say I'm excited about everybody that I get the opportunity to interview. But today I'm I'm going to say I'm just one step a little higher excited that I get to chat with you. And, and I don't want to take away from all the other great investors that we've got to talk to. But you're doing some really creative things that are really going to change the world. And I've been following what you're doing, what this space is doing. And I get goosebumps just talking about right now if you could show this on camera. Because I think it's exceptionally cool. Uh, the areas that you guys are really focused in on. And before I steal that thunder, um, I want to uh, uh, see if you could give us a little bit more about your background, all the way from your RBC days, share a little bit about yourself and then what you're up to today. And then I'm going to interject throughout that. And then one thing about you that nobody else would know. Oh, dear. Okay. Well, um, my, my, my professional career has been in investment management and in banking. So I started off at RBC in real estate markets and then moved on to the corporate credit side of the table, corporate banking, and then ultimately onto the derivatives desk. Um, and I was uh, in sales uh, for FX and commodity derivatives and became the, um, the head of global um, financial engineering for RBC uh, Capital Markets Financial Engineering deal team, that is. I left in 2000 and uh, early 2007 uh, to join the current co-founder of Noetic, um, my, my partner in crime, uh, Warren Wright. Um, we were looking to build an asset management firm that was focused on esoteric strategies. I think this is important to the equation because it tells you where the DNA came from. And these are strategies that were hedge fund strategies um, that were very uncorrelated to the markets. So we're talking about strategies that were um, the likes of reinsurance, weather derivatives, um, music royalty, a lot of IP um, uh, related businesses, pharmaceutical royalty, um, film financing. Uh, we did a very sort of a large slate financing deal with 20th Century Fox. Um, so, uh, you know, complex commodity trades, complex credit trades, but strategies that, you know, were not dependent on whether the markets were up or down. And those strategies served us well in years like 2008 and 2011. And then we sold our business to the Carlisle Group. They came knocking on the door and um, it, was, uh, it was a great sale for us. And, and uh, then I spent a couple of years at Carlisle as a managing director and then um, you know, wasn't interested in staying with a large organization, wanted to go back to focusing on the, the esoteric areas. Um, so I focused on disruptive innovation, worked with uh, and, and have been advising folks at uh, Rose Park Advisors. Um, that's um, Professor Clay Christensen's 
uh, family office, really. Uh, Professor Christensen passed away a few years ago, um, but is the father of disruptive innovation. So disruptive innovations of interest to me, education technologies of interest to me, renewable energy, a lot of the impact-related investments. But psychedelics, and in particular, CNS, which is central nervous system-focused investments, are very important to me. It's, it's an area that I've been studying for 20 years, and I want to be very careful when I say that. Um, because it's not like I've been, you know, sitting in some dark basement tripping for 20 years. No, I've been following the, the history, the culture, the science, the neuroscience, the ethnobotany, uh, the pharmacology, um, the pharmacokinetics behind many of these plant medicines that go back literally 10 to 12,000 years from what we can gather through history. Um, and have been, you know, incredibly profound and game-changing and transformative through enough anecdotal evidence to show that um, they're able to actually get to the root cause of our mental distress, as opposed to it being a, um, a short-term remedy or uh, treating the symptom. Um, so it's an exciting area. We launched Noetic in, in uh, 2020, very early. Um, we have two funds. Our first fund is closed. That has generated about 400% return. The first dollar in, that's how um, uh, the, the growth has been in that, in that fund. So very exciting. We've had five exits. Fund two, we're, we're looking to raise capital, but we're going to be closing fund two in short order uh, by the end of September, uh, mid-October latest. Um, so that that's the that's a bit of story about myself and, and Noetic in terms of one thing that that nobody knows about me um, at all, perhaps maybe very, very few people, <laughs> is that um, um, uh, I'm a trained tenor. I, 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 I trained as a tenor throughout high school, so I, I, I sing and I sing right now only in the shower. Uh, it's not for, um, for, for, for anybody else for that matter. I, I don't think they'd be, they'd be very pleased with uh, uh, my voice. So, um, so there you go. I, ho I hope that answers your question. No, that's amazing. And, and I have to ask, uh, did you want to do a, a quick snapshot of the, uh, the tenor side of things? I would be, I think that would be pretty exceptional to see. I don't think I know anybody that has, uh, this background. So, um, I'm only, uh, uh, being a little bit um, uh, off the rocker there to, to put you on the spot, but very exciting and so cool that you have a background uh, that's so diverse, uh, but even being able to just jump in front of a room to be able to uh, do that at a large scale is exceptional. Um, I would be shaking like a leaf. So I think that uh, it's pretty cool to have uh, uh, an experience like that. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. So to, to kind of peel back to a lot of the back in the, the days of RBC and to where you are today, I think there's been obviously a tremendous amount of, of learning. And, and I like that you shared that uh, you haven't spent uh, 20 years in the basement testing and running through the psychedelic side of things to kind of get to the experimental and pass that to the investment stage. But to go back in when you were working at the RBC side, maybe you can share a little bit more about how the the derivative side, the capital market side really operates in not just in, um, I wouldn't say it's so much focused at all in this case on startup side, but what it does do is it really helps you understand assets. And I'm thinking the last couple of years of the world has really started to learn publicly what assets are. Uh, I think everybody in the back of their mind were like, yeah, cool, I own a home maybe. Uh, but I think today the world through the pandemic has started to really educate themselves. And this goes to that whole DeFi and, and allowing people to learn more about how to self 
fund self-operate function. Maybe you can share a little bit about that experience and the learning, because I think that in today's world, it's becoming more and more accessible on what assets are and how people are driving through Instagram and sharing content. A lot of it is about you need to build your own ice machine. You need to do this. You need to do that. And everything's about bringing dollars and finding ways to make money off assets on every aspect of life. And as you said, you've got assets that you were driving into, but they weren't failing. They just grow over time. It's just a matter of letting time occur. Maybe share a little bit about that background and that experience if you could. Yeah, no, I, I, the, the experience at RBC was invaluable um, because it allowed me to understand optionality. And optionality is critical, I think, to the equation. And what does optionality mean? You need to understand risk and how to manage risk and understand where the risks lie, how to price those risks, what is the risk premium that is needed um, you know, by investors to, um, uh, to take on the risks. And, um, and then how do you construct a portfolio with all these positions that are ideally orthogonal uh, to the markets and orthogonal to each other and in a way, you capture, um, you know, the quintessential risk premia um, that your investors are looking for. So in order to understand risk, you are always in a situation, even in life, where you need to understand what is it that you're long and what is it that you're short. And in particular, you know, there's certain um, Greeks that, you know, like when I say Greeks, that you need to understand, you know, where you're long gamma, where you're short gamma. And a lot of folks may understand, you know, calls and puts, but um, the nuances of understanding how volatility plays into the equation is, is very, very important. And the way that I often try and help people to understand, for example, just the mere concept of where you're long and short gamma, um, you know, I will say that with with my um, um, with, with with my mother, I'm 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 long gamma. I don't have to do very much, and she'll be very happy with me, right? Um, but with my dad, I'm short gamma, which is I can do everything perfectly well, but I, I I mess up one little bit on one little thing, and all of a sudden it's like down. And and so that's a way to explain gamma. And so for me, it was understanding optionality, understanding risk, and then being able to explain and, and, and you know, um, uh, actualize that within a portfolio setting to better meet clients and investors' needs. That training was invaluable. And I think that that training um, and that understanding of risk should be part of, of every entrepreneur's toolbox. I almost think that risk should be something that is learned throughout time through high school, university, because I think we lack the ability to understand how something really functions, especially from a monetary value and understanding what risk means today versus five years from now. And what is the value you're going to gain from being early and, you know, taking where you guys are in your fund and the, the area that you're going into, which is very early, early into um, areas that are just getting approvals by, um, governments that will or will not allow this to go forward, which is a huge risk um, in psychedelics. So going back into that time period, you start to look through numbers, looking through value. And, you know, today you could say that, um, you know, and it's not talked about a lot, but the price of a home, as an example, you know, 20 years ago, the price of a home was X and today it's 
a hundred times that value, but maybe people couldn't have seen that the markets were going to open up so many dollars that were going to create this uh, form of inflation or form of, um, of value in an asset. And today everything is an asset. And you've done this through music. Uh, you see a lot today. I think Justin Timberlake just sold for a hundred million, his um, portfolio of, uh, of music. So there's a lot of musicians doing this now. So they're realizing that they've got a book of assets. So now, because everybody's starting to realize that my car's an asset now, even used cars are becoming um, less written down every year because they're like, wait a second, this thing's might be old, but it actually can still run. It has all this metal. It has all this value. We shouldn't be depreciating the hell out of this. And now all of a sudden, this old car has got more value today than it ever has in the history of cars. So people are starting to respect more of the value of assets and having that knowledge on how to assess that risk. How do you look at even again, back in your RBC days, how were you looking at where a market was going to go and where it would eventually end up in 10 years? so that you would see success versus seeing, seeing a fallout? You know, I think a large part of that really came from, from the time that was spent um, in about nine years, uh, spent at Diversified Global Asset Management, which is where I went to right after RBC. And that's the business that we sold to the Carlyle Group, uh, which, you know, as, as your listeners will, will likely know, is a, is a large private equity firm based out of Washington, D.C. And um, our the whole business at DGAN, uh, was to focus on unique strategies and risk and, and emerging strategies. And these are strategies that actually didn't exist. So we, we helped seed those strategies, right? So you mentioned music royalty. That was one of our strategies where, you know, um, people may remember the David Bowie bonds, um, but, you know, music royalty uh, really came into the scene because you're able to now amass these uh, uh, pools of assets and every time it plays at a hair salon or on, on by a DJ on a radio station, you get you get a, a royalty fee from it. Same thing with pharmaceutical royalties. That was another one uh, where we you know buy the royalty stream from the actual inventor or or the group that sort of you know helped put it together, and um, we price it as such and, and give them one lump sum amount um, and take over the royalty stream. So uh, the. With that, I think what's what's critical here is to understand that every one of these life these these strategies that are new emerging, much like psychedelics, much like CNS, CNS, you know, I say with an asterisk, mind you, has a life cycle. Okay, and initially, when it comes onto the scene, it's going to distinctly attract a very small subset of investors and a cohort of individuals and parties and, 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 and institutions. And then it's gonna evolve. And as that evolves, much like, you know, uh, a baby learns to crawl, then, you know, then, then, um, then walk and then becomes an adolescent, an adult. Um, these strategies have a, a natural life cycle to them. And knowing how to, um, uh, again, extract the risk premia at those various stages of the life cycle is very important. Once you've seen that, you, you see that in very diverse set of strategies, right, that, that are not related to each other. So, you know, cocoa trading and coffee trading to music royalty to, you know, reinsurance and weather derivatives, um, you realize that that life cycle kind of is the same for, for many. Maybe it doesn't have the same cadence, but it, it goes through a process, right? 
And when you are able to identify that, that's very helpful. And that just comes from years of experience in, in seeding these kinds of strategies and understanding the life cycle. So I think that's what we came away with in being able to identify quite early on that, wait a second, this is an emerging strategy. This is an unmet need. This is going to get bigger, right? And part of that is to identify what are the catalysts that have to take place in order for that to happen. And I just want to give you one analogy. When you take a look at what we're doing right now, we're on Zoom, okay? Zoom and a lot of the education technology platforms like Coursera, Udemy, so on, weren't able to come onto the scene if it wasn't for cloud computing and, and you know, broadband um, that, that really came onto the scene in 2009, 2010. If it wasn't for that, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now on Zoom, right? So that was the catalyst. And then all of a sudden, all these companies started to come into place. And now everybody's very familiar with the ubiquitous uh, Zoom platform, for example. In the same way, there are distinct things that have happened in neuroscience um, and our understanding of the mapping of the brain and the mind um, um, that, that, that we've learned in the last five years um, that, you know, uh, and we've learned more about the human brain in the last five years than any other time in history. And a lot of those learnings have been catalysts for allowing us to go deeper and dive deeper into the central nervous system and better through precision um, target um, the distinct areas in the brain that we need to in order to see distinct outcomes for, for the better. And, and so it, we were able to identify those catalysts that took place. And, and as a result, you know, um, uh, start to identify those entrepreneurs and researchers that were doing some profound work in the space. And we're very excited about the outcome, right? This is, this is probably, the, in my opinion, uh, one of the top three biggest unmet needs in humanity, right? And mental health is not getting any better. With everything that's going on, it's unfortunately gonna get worse. And so this needs to be an area that requires a lot more focus, a lot more capital, a lot more attention. And it has um, incredible amount going for it. I mean, incredible efficacious, it's incredibly efficacious, but it's also, it's also the right time. It's sort of the golden era for investing in neuroscience in our opinion. Which I think again is phenomenal, the, the direction of where this comes from. But if you kind of look back on when you're talking about different forms of catalysts that have created a movement, when you look at the other large movement that's occurred in the last five years, which was the uh, almost becoming the globalization of, of weed or uh, medical marijuana that then moved, of course, now into uh, usage, there was this massive push. Everything skyrocketed. So let's say that it was probably 10 years ago when this started to take um, a movement going forward. And you started to try to move it more to this legal framework. So I'm not sure where the catalyst was, but the marketing side of it and the make money side of it is kind of the big driver to how they could open this up, utilize it. It's a leaf. This should be normalized. Why is this not? So what was the catalyst that created that? And was it was in this case of marijuana being legalized and now being pushed globally, was that more of uh, centralizing around marketing and money versus creating a catalyst for good. So where you're coming from uh, on the psychedelic side, 
you're using the catalyst that we know more, we have more logical understanding of the brain, we're diving into that more, mental health is having bigger problems. So does this become, because of that, it actually has a different form of catalyst. It isn't about money. It isn't about uh, creating this market uh, and taking something out of the gray area and moving it into the public eye. It's taking something that was in the gray area because it was put in the gray area for the wrong reasons, because people didn't want to take the time to better understand uh, the mental development that can come out of the proper usage of this. So you have a different form of catalyst. And what I'm trying to get from this discussion is that when you're looking and analyzing markets, and this goes from auto to you name it, pharmaceuticals all the way across, how do you determine what the catalyst is that's going to bring value and bring long-term value versus a short-term value, which was a real fast gain in marijuana and then the fall off a cliff versus what you're doing that's going to bring this into hundreds of years worth of development and value for everybody from mental, financial, all the way across the spectrum? Yeah, that's a great question, Jeffrey, and I appreciate you asking that because um, marijuana and psychedelics are worlds apart. They're just it's apples and oranges, it's Mars and Venus. And it's very important to understand that because with marijuana, although there is a medicinal side to it, of course, the, the real revenue is in the recreational use of it and, and it being available and, and, and you know, at, at, uh, uh, across, uh, across the platform. Um, and so it, it's a more of a consumer package goods play. It's more of a branding exercise, more about a marketing exercise. Whereas what's happening with psychedelics, although there's a small contingency that is, you know, again, focused on the, the, uh, potentially sort of marketing towards the decriminalization movement that's taking place in Oregon and ultimately may happen in California. The, the vast, the majority of it is clinical trials. It's about new chemical entities or novel chemical entities. It's about drug development and drug discovery. It's about getting it through IND, then phase one, phase two, phase three, you know, uh, the whole uh, FDA approval process and Health Canada's approval process, and then an element of commercializing it, what's the best delivery mechanism and so on. So it's a very different animal altogether. And it is... Um, it is not for sort of, you know, making it available uh, uh, legally, recreationally. Um, it's, it's really about ensuring that um, the process that is followed for medicinal use will ultimately get approved for therapeutic purposes. But it'll be needed to be administered by somebody that's trained um, uh, to, to administer that. These are very, very, very powerful molecules, right? And that's the one important thing to understand. Um, and preparing for it, knowing whether you should be partaking in it, the way to partake in it, um, the follow-up thereafter, the integration, all of that is critically important. So ultimately, this is a lot more about therapy. It is also very much probably one of the most pronounced example of precision medicine. And what I mean by that is, you can get 25,000 people the same exact dose of the same exact molecule, let's say psilocin or psilocybin here, um, and, um, and you'll have 25,000 different experiences because of what's subjective, what's in your default mode network. So we have to be very careful, right? This is not akin to marijuana for that matter. So as a result, I think what we saw initially was there were a lot of investors that came into the space early in 2020 that built up a lot of hype 
and took markets to a level that you know really shouldn't have gone to. And then they soon realized that, wait a second, this is not marijuana. This is not uh, uh, really going in that direction at all. And, and, and a lot of those companies have come down hard, right, from, from their highs. Um, it's because the hype-driven investors sort of left. That's all part and parcel of what would happen in the life cycle of an emerging strategy. So none of that was news to us or we were surprised by it. We expected it. But it's very important to differentiate that the drug development, drug discovery taking place with psychedelic molecules is not what the cannabis industry went through. And there are very few comparisons to that, if anything. Perhaps maybe the, 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 the real comparison really comes with regards to a regulatory protocol that you can compare to what happened and what cannabis went through potentially with what psychedelics may have to go through. So does this put in context, I guess, the disruptive industries that you're working towards and in, that you're always going to have people that are going to overinflate something um, because they're not seeing the longevity of the value that you're creating. And does this affect the real value of what you're trying to produce? Because it's the new shiny thing, right? Everybody I found over years of sales is that people love to meet new people, but they go back to what they know. So they love the fact that this is disruptive, new, and it's exciting. But after about a little bit of time and not seeing what they think they're supposed to see, they fall out, drop it, but they take the value with them. So is that kind of what's happening? And you're seeing this in a lot of spaces, or is this something that we're going to work through because disruption goes, goes through these cycles as well? Yeah, there's an element of irrational exuberance. There is was a uh, mis, misunderstood or misperceived and you know, kind of analogy between what was happening in cannabis and a lot of investors said, well, it was the early investors in cannabis that made a lot of money, so we don't want to lose out. So let's go into psychedelics because it looks like it's the same thing and they're all the same thing, and it's just the furthest from the truth. And so uh, again, that's just part of what makes a market the market. That's the exciting part. Um, I, I think what what is what is critical to understand here is that when that hype-driven investor leaves, um, you do get the uh, you know the, the the more serious investors that end up staying that truly understand and appreciate it for what it is, which is that listen, this has got a long cycle to it. This is a long road, and if I was to use any sports analogy it actually doesn't matter what sports analogy i use because what we've literally done is just parked our car in the parking lot whether you're going to go see a baseball game or an ice hockey whatever it doesn't matter like we've just parked our car in the parking lot and we're making our way to the stadium that's how early we are right there are currently um you know 60 compounds in clinical trials of which i would say 18 of them are where actual dosage is taking place We've got one in phase three, um, a, you know, a huge chunk in phase two A and phase two B. There, there are a lot more in phase uh, one, in phase one. But the way to think about this area is to think about it in terms of indication, which is what what is the indication that they're going after? What is the problem that they're trying to solve? And the biggest problem that's trying to be solved right now is treatment-resistant depression. By virtue of its name, there is no treatment for that depression. It's treatment resistant, right? And that's a very serious issue. The second one, interestingly enough, uh, right now is alcohol use, um, um, uh, right? And so it's it's alcohol use disorder where there's that's a that's a huge uh, area that's currently unmet. 
Um, and, uh, and thereafter it's anxiety. Um, we're also looking at eating disorders. Um, you know, we've got work going on with certain inflammatory related ailments, but the, the top three are, are really with regards to anxiety, PTSD, first and foremost, treatment resistant depression and alcohol use disorder. So when you take a look at by indication to answer your question, you're sort of saying, okay, that's, that's the indication. What's currently working? Not very much. This is really important for your listeners to, to um, or viewers to understand and appreciate. Lithium was discovered by John Cade in Australia in 1949. It was brought to the US in 1950. And when it was brought to the US and they administered to those that had mental health issues, which again, if you had a mental issue, um, mental health issue, then you were uh, in, an hosp in a hospital bed, you were institutionalized. And what they found was through the administration of lithium, 70%, 70, 70% of hospital beds were freed up. So at that time in the 50s, they said, we, we found the Holy Grail. What do we need to spend a lot of time in CNS and lithium works? Look at it, like it was healing everybody. And fast forward to the 80s, Prozac is literally a slight design improvement to lithium. There has been very little innovation here. And we know that the side effects of these SSRIs and SNRIs, the antidepressants, are, are massive. They, they, they cause major, major problems. The, the actual drug itself works. It interacts with the receptor the way it needs to, but it also has to meet every other receptor. How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? How you doing? <laughs> it, it shouldn't. It should just meet with the one receptor that you need to go to meet, and that's it. You don't need to meet everybody else. But the problem is that they meet everybody. So that's why there's this unmet need because the current platform is not working. It's causing more issues. There's been little innovation because there's been little understanding of what else can, should, should really be done. And because psychedelics were kind of put in this, in this bucket of a substance abuse disorder, a schedule one list, um, the work stopped. But in the nineties, a bunch of these institutions that were working on it at the various academic institutions and, and, and other private organizations and public organizations got together at Esalen in, in San Francisco, like just south of San Francisco and said, okay, guys, um, here's what we found through our research. And it was like, wow, here's what we found. And that's when sort of the reawakening or the renaissance, the beginnings of this renaissance movement really started because that's when the research came to the forefront and you realized with all this anecdotal evidence and some of the work that was going on at select institutions that the results were profound. And that's why we're back on track, because now we actually have a real efficacious way of solving the problem. But still, there are a lot of risks, Jeffrey. I want to make sure that everybody understands this is not without risk. We know that the molecules work, that the science is incredibly compelling, but there's a lot of plumbing that still needs to be figured out, right? Um, we need to figure out what is the best delivery mechanism. We need to understand aspects of the duration, right? You're, we need to find a way to, how this will actually be commercialized, which molecules are best suited for which indication. Um, not everybody, this is not for everybody, not everybody is predisposed to psychedelics. If you are suffering from schizophrenia or psychosis, it's off the table, it's completely off the table. But there's certain things that we're doing now that would allow those that are suffering from those ailments to actually partake in this. So it's, it gets really, really exciting. Um, and, and this is the time for it. 
Well, it's uh, it's certainly what I, again, I find really uh, exciting about this space. And you, you talked to a few of these, these pieces earlier. Um, and of course, when you're getting into the risk format and how this is all going to play itself out. Um, and I think the idea for an entrepreneur when they're getting into this type of product or this, this space is trying to understand, am I getting my, am I creating a business that has longevity because the right catalysts are being formed, have been formed, or they exist. And in the case of where you're coming from, or at least where I'm seeing that you've done with the business currently, is that you had catalysts that helped supported you to jump into this space and start to look at ways that you could uh, support new drugs and new patterns of working and helping people with mental disabilities and looking at the key ones that could be solved in this space. So now kind of taking that analogy and how you've been able to operate, how can you describe what is a better way for entrepreneurs now today to start looking at uh, new spaces that are coming and where do you see these new spaces unfolding, not just in the psychedelic space, but other areas like robotics, whatever that might be. What are the catalysts that are driving these spaces to be a value today or will be a value in five to 10 years? You know, it's technology moves at a rapid pace. And that's the one freight train you never want to stand in front of, right? Ultimately, um, uh, I will uh, go out and say that there may well be technological advancements that take place, which we're already seeing with, you know, certain modalities like transcranial magnetic therapy, right? Uh, neurofeedback modulation, others, where without the use of any drugs, we can actually solve these problems, right? And so that's one freight train I will not want to stand in front of. So it's really understanding really, you know, what, what is the research that's underway um, um, that could be disruptive here, um, uh, where, you know, where, where that research is, you know, how far it needs to go. Um, you know, folks don't realize that, you know, for example, in the renewable energy space, um, uh, fusion is is a very compelling uh, uh, you know case now, and, and it's a it's it's something that we're not that far away from, where we can actually find a way to um, you know harness fusion. We, we already know that we can get it to the right temperature, the plasma. Now we need to just control it. There are few parties around the world that are working on this that have been highly funded, but we can have entire neighborhoods and cities um, you know completely powered by fusion. And with, without the risks, by the way, right? Without the risks. Um, but that has taken about 15 or more years to get to where it is now. It's still maybe five or six years away, um, and maybe eight years, but it, it, it's a very compelling case. So it's about keeping track of the, the technology. More importantly, it's trying to better understand what, what is working, what is not working, um, and why is it that it's not working, right? So regardless of the industry, if you're on top of the disruptive elements, you're on top of exactly how the needs are being met and not being met. And then what is the unique value proposition that you're bringing to the table that is going to disrupt this? Now, it's important to understand disruption, right? Because um, you know, the way that Clay Christensen has written about it and explains it is really important because 98% of the time when people say something is disruptive, they're not actually understanding, you know, that, that, that term or understand that definition. To be disruptive 
in order for the incumbent not to get upset, you need to come up with a product or service that is actually inferior or cheaper to the incumbent. And all that means then is that your probability of success in that case um, goes up slightly, goes up from, I don't know, six or 8% to, you know, a little under 40% potentially. Um, but it doesn't still mean you're going to be successful. It just means your probability of success is greater because you're coming up with a product that is cheaper, inferior to the incumbent, but the trade-off is that you are catering to a market that is just not being catered to. That's the key thing. You're catering to a market nobody's catering to, um, and the incumbent ignores you because you're either cheaper or inferior to what they are. But with technology improving, you know that your product and service will ultimately improve and take over. So a prime example of that are the, 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 the mini sort of steel mills now, um, you know, that have re replaced the full blast steel, uh, 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 the full blast furnace uh, steel mills. It's about how the personal computer took over the, the mini computer. There are many examples of that, but I think that's critical to understand. And if you understand the logic behind that, uh, I think you can come up with a better unique value proposition for your product offering the service. No, that's awesome. And I think that does really help people better understand when they're building companies, starting out new companies, they have to look at a lot of these things versus just having a passion play and diving in. Investors are looking for something that is disruptive, scalable, and all these terms that people really don't understand what they mean when you get granular into them. And this is the type of thing and how they are going to bring success is that you've created a runway, you've created a market that's not being serviced. You've got products that are in the market that have flaws or that they're not meeting the need of the environment that they're working in. Or in the case of fusion, they're doing the right things, but they need that extra catalyst to come in and really ramp them up. And those are the little things that you have to look at. But I think one of the key factors of all of this is that you're in that environment and that you're focused on that environment. And that's going to bring a lot of value into your business or into your startup when you start to plan and start to grow uh, this business or this model into the future. Yeah, no, uh, 100%. You, you got it right, Jeffrey. That, 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 that's really it. So I think um, there was one thing I was going to add just in the, the psychedelic space. I know there was a lot of work that was being done back in the 60s, 40s to 60s in Montreal and it kind of uh, really got shut down at some point in there, is there have been a lot of um, work, Canadian, North America side, where people are going back to the original testing and the original data that was in the market to figure out if there was ways to enhance some of the uh, pre-work that was done, or does everybody kind of just dismiss whatever has been done in the market and they just kind of plow forward and try to create something new and uh, disregard what may have been tested or run or gone through the FDA back in those days? No, everything that's happened in the past has been incredibly instrumental and helpful to, you know, taking us further down, right? It's iterative. So you needed all of that to happen. And that has been a very important part of the equation. Psychedelics, you know, as Stan Groff uh, talks about it, essentially allowed us to, it's, it, 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 the best analogy I can use is that they, they were, it's like a, it was a, it's a telescope to look into the, the workings of the brain and the mind and the psyche. That's what psychedelics did, right? It's important to note that what psychedelics do is that they inhibit the inhibitor. And what I mean by that is that we've got this default mode network. The default mode network is where we store all our trauma. 
It's where the past is stored, memories are stored. Okay. And it's also what, you know, we use to try and figure out, well, what's going to happen in the future, our anxiety about the future and what may happen there. So you're doing everything except living in the now. When, you, when you're in the now, uh, the default mode network is, you know, pretty much useless. But most of the time, we're not living in the now, right? And a lot of folks are, are, are really hung up on what happened in the past and, the, you know, the trauma and so on. Now, when you shut that down momentarily, and you're able to now take a look at the same problem or issues, but you're looking at it from a different perspective all of a sudden, it almost as if you're looking at it from a different lens, or think about it this way, if, if the problem is an 800 pound gorilla in the room, and now all of a sudden you've shrunk it down to the size of mini me, it's much easier to deal with, right? That learning and that understanding of how psychedelics facilitate that in the way that it interacts with the right receptors, the serotonin receptors, is incredibly important. And that's all the work that has been done. But also, just to kind of give you a bit of a history on this, plant medicine goes back, way, way back in history. The first mention of it that we understand now is in the Rig Vedas. Um, um, you know, uh, that, 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 you know, many argue the Rig Vedas are much older than, than many believe them to be astronomically. They're about 10,000 years old or more. But the soma was mentioned there, and this is a plant that gives you immortal immortality. Um, the homa, which is in the Persian culture and the Persian Empire and the Persian civilization, again had this similar sort of, uh, uh, and, and that is the Syrian rue, okay, and that's known as the homa. We also have um, depiction of the blue lotus flower um, in uh, ancient Egypt. It's it's all over their markings, right? And the blue lotus uh, flower was 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 dipped into wine and used for ceremony. In in all these cases, right? The these plant medicines were used by nobility for them to commune or to receive certain you know, wisdom or part of their ritual, but they weren't shared with everybody else. But you know, from cave art that goes back 4,000 BC, I mean, this is very old technology and I do call it technology. And so we've been dealing with this for a long time. There's also a, a, a very, very famous theory uh, with regards to what Terence McKenna came up with called the stoned ape theory, because at some point 200,000 years ago, there was a major shift in our consciousness and the way of our thinking that, that propelled us to, to, you know, to where we are today, really. And what was that? And the theory is that you, know, you had these um, uh, beings that started to eat the mushrooms and, and that sort of helped expand their consciousness. But um, this goes way, way, this is not new. These plant medicines are not new. These molecules are not new, but a bulk of that work was done uh, at the turn of the uh, uh, 20th century. So in 1894, 1896, um, you know, mescaline with mescaline, uh, MDMA in the, uh, in the early 1900s. Um, you know, we, we had uh, in the Sandoz lab with, with, with LSD. So it stopped, but when we took it over again, all of that research was incredibly important to the equation going forward. And, and now we're catching up, but we know so much more. There's also tons of anecdotal evidence that we need to look into that has been absolutely instrumental in us understanding how these molecules work. So there's there is a lot of um, a lot of great changes that are happening in this space, and I do wholeheartedly appreciate uh, you sharing all this, which is awesome. 
Yeah, look, it's 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 my pleasure. I just want to make sure that everybody understands that. Look, the, the the there's a return on financial capital here that is very very compelling because of how large this unmet need is, no doubt. But there's also an incredible return on human capital that should really be you know paid attention to, and and that is going to be profound here, right? And if we can solve this problem. And, you know, and if it, it ends up just allowing, you know, certain individuals within your community or neighborhood to be happier, shinier people, um, uh, then that, that is that is that is game changing. Um, so, it, it, uh, again, there are risks. There's a lot of risks in the plumbing, but the risk that is, um, you know, uh, it's more, I guess you could say, digital or, or, or is, is trickier is the risk pertaining to whether these molecules are efficacious or not. We know the science is compelling. We know they're efficacious. The risks lie more in how do we actually find a way to scale this, make it available, commercialize it, and um, um, uh, and disseminate it to, to those that need it. And those are the problems that need to be solved. And educate a lot of people along the way. So I, I do uh, totally agree with that. And I think there's a huge, huge opportunity for mankind to, to be able to learn from this and grow. Um, everyone grow from this and, and mentally help a lot of people. So uh, amazing share. Uh, we're going to transition now into um, kind of more of that heartfelt story. And we're touching on a little bit of this, but maybe you can share a story through the investments that you've made over time. Just talk a little bit about a use case around what it takes to really be an entrepreneur. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, uh, I think that story is is one of what I would call the hero's journey that, you know, Joseph Campbell very articulately kind of laid out. Um, and uh, the, the hero's journey really requires the entrepreneur to, again, um, take on a risk that is, you know, that they're they're scared of taking on, um, but they're compelled to want to take it on. They're they're motivated by it, and um, it's testing, you know, their conviction in that um, idea, concept, thought um, that that is very important to, to to this equation. So, you've got your necessary building blocks, which is obviously identifying an unmet need seeing that you've got something that's truly disruptive, um, building a value proposition around it. But there's so many other factors that come into play, especially in this market environment. Um, do you have access to capital? Do you have access to deep pockets? Do you have the ability to, you know, kind of maintain your burn over the next X amount of time to get through this? What are the major milestones that need to be reached and how does that add to value? Um, and th there have been some, some, some incredible stories in our portfolio. You have to keep in mind that within our portfolio, a little over 50% is based on, it's focused on psychedelic drug development, drug discovery but we're out to solve a particular problem with mental health. So we're looking at other modalities too, wearables, medical devices, um, uh, other modalities that can be very, very helpful here. And you know, the, the stories that, that clearly stand out to be the success stories here with entrepreneurs is one that is very heavily research backed. So they've got the science, the science is incredibly compelling, but Probably the one factor that distinguishes those that really do well with this in terms of getting the capital that they need and moving forward is apart from all the things that I mentioned, is the ability to tell the story properly and to tell the story in a way that resonates with the investors 
and resonates with um, you know their particular investment goals and objectives. Um, if you know the the. the it's, it's that individual, that group that is able to tell a better story that is able to see success much sooner and faster. So how you build it within the narrative is an important part of the equation. And that's one thing that I wanted to highlight because people don't typically tend to talk about that as much. Awesome. Totally agree with that. that you know, know your audience, but just be able to share that story that articulates the real problem, the solution that you're going after. And all of those factors that you brought in make such a big difference if, uh, and it's not always about deep pockets, it's about having the right partners, uh, the right advisors, the people that are gonna assist you along the way, uh, the groups that are going to assist you and, and being able to help carry you through. And especially in the utilizing your uh, side of it from the, the drug acceptance side of it there's so many stages and so many extra costs that come in at each level so you really do have to have a really strong roadmap that's going to allow you to succeed and, and go through these stages that can take anywhere from three years to ten and uh, not a lot of people plan for a 10-year rollout of a business without making money so there's a lot of things that get tied into that indeed well said well we're going to jump into some rapid fire questions okay. um they're uh, they're pretty straightforward. Pick one or the other. First ones are going to be business, so you can relate on the investor side um, on which option you want to choose. So, uh, ready to roll? Sure. All right, let's do this. All right, first question: founder or co-founder? Co-founder. Okay. Unicorn or a four-year ten x exit? <laughs> Unicorn. Go big or go home. Tech or CPG? Tech. NFTs or Web 3.0? Hmm. Web 3.0. AI or blockchain? Blockchain. First time founder or second, third time founder? Third time founder, fourth time founder. Love it. First money in or Series A? Hmm, good question. Um, uh, depends on your risk profile, but you know, if you're able to do well with first money in, and uh, are able to pick that winner early on, that's huge, huge. That's huge win. Good, good track record there. So, first money in, more risky. Angel or VC? Hmm, VC. Board seat or observer? Board seat. Safe or convertible note? Hmm. Convert. Lead or follow? Lead. Equity or interest payments? Equity. Favorite part of investing? Sorry? Favorite part of investing? You're asking what is my favorite part of investing? Correct. Oh, just a uh, favorite part of investing is, is to, to walk through everyone's, you know, value proposition and understand how they got there. It's like watching a movie. I like it. Number of companies invested per year. Per year. Well, we've, uh, I, I would say we're on average about uh, eight to 10. Love it. Uh, any preferred terms? No, I mean, it, it, everything is so unique to that particular opportunity that there's, there's, you know, it's a it, uh, preferred term is always a customized approach. It's customized terms. I like to use customized terms. 
Okay. You mentioned a little bit of this, but just to reiterate it, verticals of focus. For us, it's central nervous system. It's focused on solving that one problem. So we're looking at all modalities, but there's so much more that goes with it. It's the infrastructure. It's the, you know, it's the the tech that plays behind the scenes. It's uh, uh, the, the the platforms to build the modalities. You know, it's it's looking at everything from from insurance to psychedelic assisted therapy curriculum and sessions to the the actual you know molecules, of course. But there's so much more in this ecosystem um, that is compelling and that needs to be in place. Love it. Two qualities a startup needs in order to stand out to you. Um, the story, of course, the experience, but more importantly, it's the focus on trying to uh, communicate um, all the mistakes that they've made in the past. I want to learn about the failures and what they learned from it. It's a great, great answer. Okay, we're gonna to move to the personal questions. Oh boy. Most famous person that pops in your mind. Most famous person that pops in my mind? Oh God. Uh, <laughs> I say Marcus Aurelius. Nice. Book or movie? Oh, book. I've been updating oh. my, uh, my questions a little bit, so I'm trying to make them uh, so this is not a rapid fire. You ask me whether I prefer a book or a movie. Asking me which is my favorite book. Uh, book or movie? No, I, that's another question. But uh, that'll oh, come okay. after. But um, yeah. I've been modifying these questions somewhat. So Superman or Batman? Batman. Restaurant or picnic? Restaurant. First brand that pops in your mind. Um, uh, first brand that Nike. Okay. Five minutes with Bezos or Oprah? Oprah. Mountain or beach? Mountain. Favorite sports team? Favorite sports team? The Leafs. Maybe we should ask that question again. <laughs> Sorry? We should yeah, ask that question again. I know, uh, I know. Do you want to put in another answer? <laughs> oh, you gotta, you gotta stick, you gotta stick with, you, You've got to stick with, you know, your conviction here. So I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, continue to, to stick with them until, you know, they, they make it through. So, yeah, I'm loyal. Right. Loyalty is good. Uh, a bike or run? Uh, bike. Uh, beach or mountain? Mountain. Big Mac or chicken McNuggets? No. Big Mac. <laughs> trophy or money? I, 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 don't, I don't need either, but go ahead. If, if trophy or money? Trophy or money? Money. Beer or wine? Wine. King, queen, or rich? Rich. Those are my options. Concert or amusement park? Concert. Fortune cookie or birthday cake? Birthday cake. TED talk or book reading? Book reading. TikTok or Instagram? TikTok. Facebook or LinkedIn? LinkedIn. Favorite book? Favorite book. Boy, there's, there's, there's so many, but I would say that one of the books that I keep going back to is Siddhartha by Herman Hesse. 
Siddhartha. Yeah, by Herman Hesse. There's a beautiful line at the towards the end of the book, um, which says that you can knowledge is transferable, but wisdom is not. Right. So you can you can read all day long about how not to make certain mistakes, but you're really going to learn once you walk the walk and go through the process, and then you go, okay, I get it. So wisdom, you know, is not transferable. You have to walk it, with it, breathe it. Sorry, go ahead. Agreed. No, that's good. Agreed. Uh, favorite movie and what character would you play? Favorite movie. You know what? I, this just popped in my mind only because it's uh, it, it's been fresh. But I just uh, you know was watching the Obi Wan Kenobi thing on Disney Plus, and I would say my favorite movie as I was watching that was just incredibly how impactful how impactful Star Wars has been. So I would say Star Wars, the first one that came out in the seventies. And 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 the character, my favorite character in that would be Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah, his calm demeanor and I guess kicking butt also kind of ties in there nicely. So uh, yeah, I like sage like sage like character. That's exactly it. Wise man. That's where wisdom. You saw wisdom there. Go ahead. Agreed. What is the meaning of success to you? Meaning of success to me is to be able to wake up every day and feel good about the day and be in a good mood. That to me is success. If we can do that, if, if I can do that, then, then, you know, very successful. Yeah, that's what meaning of success is. I love it. Your favorite app on your mobile phone that you're using? Favorite app? Um, God, I, I, I would say, you know what? It's, um, it's Blinklist. I love Blinklist. Blinklist, all right. Yeah. It's a, uh, the summation of many books. And so you get to see whether that's worth reading or not, because it gives you a 20 minute summation of the book. And then you go, yeah, I'd like to learn more about this. So it allows me to screen books. I like that. It's a good idea. All right, cool. All right. Last question. What is your superpower? Um, I don't know if you call it a superpower, but what I enjoy doing is 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 conveying or telling a story or trying to simplify complex things. So it's, I think it's in 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 my ability to um, narrate to tell a story as a narrator. I'd say. Well, in the short time that I've got to to know you, I would say that uh, you're very good at opening up, sharing, synthesizing uh, a value in something and helping people better understand what they're getting into uh, by being very descriptive. And I think that really helps people align with, to your point, the story and being able to move forward. So I think you do a fantastic job at articulating yourself and, and helping people follow the journey. So I, I wanna say that it's been a, a privilege and an honor to be able to learn and share uh, lots of great ideas, but learn more about this space that's really unique and hopefully going to define uh, a lot of and help a lot of people in the mental health capacity. But I want to thank you very much for all your time today. And the way we like to kind of end our show is we like to give you the last word. So anything that you want to share to the investor community or to the startups, I turn it over to you. But thank you very much again for all your time and sharing today. 
No, thank you, Jeffrey. That's if, if anything, all of that is really just a testament to you know you being a great host and a great moderator. So I appreciate the questions and and your approach to it. Um, what what I'd like to leave everybody with is is that you know you don't need to believe in in psychedelics. You don't need to believe in the 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 you know um, um, the way in which you know these plant medicines have played a role in our history or any of that part of the narrative. But I would ask everybody to be open-minded and keep an eye out for the developments that are taking place in CNS, central nervous system. Um, you know, mental health now is a topic that we put front and center. We're not ashamed to talk about it anymore. The pandemic was critical to that, but we now need to start to pay attention to the solutions. And um, ultimately, you know, um, uh, the holy grail here is, is that if we can find a way to, to solve this problem uh, in a way that, that arms the next generation to be in a better position to you know, deal with these stresses because these stresses are not gonna get any better. So I would ask everybody to keep an open mind and, and just to pay attention to what's going on because it is incredibly profound. I love it. And I wholeheartedly support that and agree that there is so much opportunity with an open mind in any area, but more specifically in areas that we're afraid of because of the unknowns. I think that with some time learning and slow education, I think we're all going to get there and be more uh, accepting, accepting of things that can change our lives with uh, just a little tiny bit of a dab and you'll never know what could happen. So I think there's uh, certainly a lot of opportunity in the world. So thank you very much again for all your time and for sharing. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure. All the best. Hey, that was awesome. Uh, again, because I'm a big fan of this space and I think where psychedelics are going, it's very exciting. And there was a few things that I think, you know, from his comments around, you know, Joseph Campbell and the hero's journey when he was sharing a lot of that, uh, all the way to, you know, just being able to work through the models and what what the catalyst is around your business, what catalyst is going to create this new format for you to dive in and build a business that others are going to see the value and that you can build on this for years to come. I think a lot of times we forget that there has to be some impetus put on where this business is going to go and how can it scale. And there has to be a trigger point. And when the trigger point occurs, like he talked about with zoom, when if they didn't have these, uh, modality set up earlier that created the opportunity for a better uh, way to communicate, then five years later, we wouldn't be sitting where we are with Zoom and everybody being able to work remotely. So there's always something that creates um, the, the drive forward and opens a market. And what are those things that you're getting created today that are going to allow you to create a market and be able to solve a problem that nobody else is solving? So a lot of great insights and a lot of great details shared. And I think a lot of learning there. So it was amazing to have that discussion. So thank you very much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this conversation, please feel free to share with your friends or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and or Stitcher. Your support and comments are truly appreciated. You can also check us out at supportersfund.com or for startup events, visit openpeoplenetwork.com. Thank you and have a fantastic day.